Well, good morning, everybody. Now I'm turned on, right? Yep, good. You know, we got married young, and when you're married young, as a young guy, you do a lot of stupid things and you get in a lot of trouble. Saying things, doing things that when you're married young, one good thing about getting married young is your wife can tell you what's right and wrong, and you, <laughs> and you learn it better. You know, like uh, one thing I was taught for years and years is you never ask a woman their age. And there's an announcement on here. It says, Patty's fifth, 65th birthday party on Wednesday, August the 4th. You're all invited to it. 7 p.m. here in the fellowship hall. And uh, you need to reply to the church, uh, either online or call into the church, so they know how much cake or whatever it is that they're buying, so they know how much to bring. But, uh, so anyways, I don't know, life is kind of confusing sometimes. I asked Karen, I said, should I announce that it's her 65th birthday? Because I didn't know whether I should say that or not. Amazing. Lots to learn in life, and we're never done learning. I've said some dumb things, I'll tell you, that I wouldn't even tell you that I said. <laughs> so this morning, our scriptures are going to be found Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust eat. Uh, where, what happened? Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust eat them and rust destroys them. Uh, where, your, where thieves break in and steal, store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy where, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your eye is a, like a lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is healthy, your body, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You know, nothing beats the allure of hidden treasure with its promise of shedding light on history and being worth huge sums of money it's no wonder that so many people are drawn to hunt for it. In 1712, King Philip V of Spain required a substantial sums of cash to fund the War of Succession. To bankroll the conflict, the Spanish authorities in the New World set about assembling stockpiles of silver, gold, gemstones, and other valuables. By 1715, enough treasure had been collected to fund the war, and a fleet of 12 ships was organized to transport the goods to Spain. To avoid pirates stealing their precious cargo, the authorities decided to make the journey during hurricane season. That doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. Well, the decision uh, was a foolish one. On 31st of July, 1715, a week after the convoy of ships had set sail for Havana, Cuba, a mighty hurricane whipped up and destroyed 11 of the 12 vessels with the loss of over 1,000 lives. A lighter Carrick ship called the San Miguel is thought to have separated from the convoy and sank near Amelia Island, Florida. These particular ships are usually to transport uh, the most precious cargo because they could easily outrun pirates. 
And many think that San Miguel may have stored up to $2 billion worth of valuables. Several of the ships that went down over the years in the tempest were rec- have been recovered. But to this day, the San Miguel has never been found. You know, I remember as a kid, this allure, like just the desire, and I think it probably come from watching Disneyland or Disney World on TV on Sunday evenings, but, you know, the map and finding the, following the map and, and finding a spot and digging for the hidden treasures. I think I used to even play around pretending that's what I was doing. But, uh, you know, I still find this interesting. When the Titanic was, Titanic was found, uh, it's so interesting. Watch that documentary and those submarines going down and just slowly taking pictures around the ship and inside the ship. History frozen in time. You know, it's so interesting to see that kind of a thing. You know, there's, some, there's one uh, treasure find in uh, the United States called the Saddle Ridge Hoard. In February 2013, the largest buried pre- treasure find in American history known as Saddle Ridge Hoard um, was discovered. And a couple who owned the property were walking their dog one morning. They spotted what appeared to be a rusty can and they decided that they would dig it up. The rusty can, deformed can, uh, was unusually heavy, and the can was so heavy that while they were taking it back to the house, the lid fell off the can, and after they had discovered what was in the first can, the couple went back to the site to dig up the land to search for more of these cans uh, filled with coins, and eventually they unearthed eight cans throughout their property. And uh, the hoard of... Uh, has, to, has a total of, well, there was a total of 1,411 gold coins in these cans, and the value, face value of them was uh, right around $28,000, but the actual value of the coins is estimated to be $10 million. Quite a find, you know, and then to this day, they have no idea where that treasure came from or how it got there. You know, there's no doubt about it that there's an allure in the search for hidden treasures like these, and with the promise of shedding the light on history. That's what's so fascinating. You know, where did it come from, and how did it get there, and how old is it, and uh, who would have touched it last? And not to mention it being worth huge sums of money. You know, we see the gold rush in British Columbia at the Yukon in the 1800s, early, late 1800s, early 1900s. An article was written uh, January, February 2014, and it says, Rush to die at the Chilkoot Trail. They'd already risked it all to go this far. The red flags of danger were not about to stop them. The sacrifices that were made for this gold rush were incredible, and a lot of people lost their lives. The Klondike gold rush was uh, an international story, so it's in the year 1897, so it's no surprise that tens of thousands of people went to seek their fortunes in the gold fields of Dawson City during the years of 1897-98. The story goes like this. The snow had been falling for days. In the last two weeks of March, the powder piled up, coating the glaciers as they carved through the mountains and loading the peaks with dangerous, unstable burden. Then, as April arrived, it brought with it warm, unpredictable winds. The native packers knew better than to head up through the pass in these conditions, and the more experienced prospectors followed their lead. But when the storm broke on Palm Sunday... With a warm burst, or a burst of warm, clear air, it was an opportunity many stampeders could not ignore. In the, on April the 3rd, 1898, the Chilkoot Trail, the Klondike Gold Rush, was 
at its peak, and the hopefuls knew that just on the other side of these mountains, endless gold fields waited. You know, many of them had cashed in everything, their total life savings, to risk everything to attempt to get to Dawson City. Nothing, and not even an avalanche, was going to stop them from getting to their journey of riches. And there were many warning signs. There were a lot of different warning signs. This is a fairly long story, and then just to cut it short, I said there was an avalanche. <laughs> but a lot of, in the midst of that, there was different things that should have alerted them, and nobody should have went up in that pass. Because the night before this avalanche took place, uh, there were three guys that were killed just on the uh, snow that had come down. And the creaking and cracking that was going on all night, it was, you know, a lot of signs saying there was going to be an avalanche, and an avalanche did take place, and hundreds of men lost their lives and were buried alive. The handful who had escaped began digging immediately, and soon the bodies began to emerge in the snow. And within hours of the avalanche, even as fresh bodies continued to uh, be extracted from the snow, the ant-like line of gold-driven men hauling their outfits up to the top of the Chiltroop Pass uh, had reappeared. Three days after the tragedy, press headlines announced a disastrous avalanche, loss of lives greater than first reported. Traffic continues unimpeded on the trail. And it's amazing the length to which people will go to get the almighty dollar. You know, when you're born into such prosperity as we have had in this country, in Alberta here, I know in all of my life, you know, I know nothing but what I've experienced in this life. And then, you know, so for me, it's hard to imagine the desperation that some people must be feeling that they would risk life and limb for riches. You know, so now we move it a little closer to home, and I know that uh, many of us have witnessed firsthand over the years People striving for riches, going after the big money, as we Albertans experienced the financial windfall of this oil boom that we've experienced. And I'm sure many of us have experienced this driving desire in our lives and the grip of what it's like to uh, have this desire to make this bigger money, the extra money. And as we, uh, as and, you know, we've made sacrifices, sacrificing relationships, families, and everything else to work these long hours and these long months nonstop for the dollar. You know, it happens all too easy in the land that flows with milk and honey. And it's something that we need to be aware of. And we have got to be so careful not to let this desire for money consume us. The scriptures caution us very loudly when the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires and plunge, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In verse 21 of Matthew, we see that Jesus is, uh, he knows that one's choices have actions, one's, our choices and our actions are guided by what we value the most. And in verse 21, he says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Douglas Mangum, he, uh, he says that the previous verses in this chapter he says, establish that the storage place of one's treasure is either on earth or in heaven, 
Where one's choices to store up one's treasures is where one's heart will focus. Now early in uh, Karen and my life, we knew that God had his call on our lives. Like we gave our lives to Christ and we were uh, young, zealous believers. And we knew that God was wanting us to be pastors. But we also both knew that right at that moment wasn't the time that we were to be going into ministry. We had that agreement together. And, uh, and then so while we waited, I started to seek the Lord and ask him, you know, Lord, okay, what do you want me to do? What should I do? What direction should I go in my life? And I never heard no audible voice telling me what direction I should go in my life. But what I did was I just thought, okay, Lord, you know, I've always wanted to start a concrete finishing business. I was a concrete finisher by trade, and I knew the trade inside and out, knew it really well, and I said, Lord, how about if I start a concrete finishing business? And I felt like God said, I'll bless that. So I thought, great. And so I started up thinking and planning how I was going to do this, and then I dedicated this company to God. And I said, Lord, I just commit this company to you. It's, it's yours. I'm going to be an employee for you. And so, like, if you're going to be running God's business, you just about have to do it pretty well. You have to have a clear conscience when you're doing that kind of thing. But, you know, over the years, one thing, like, as time went on and this business grew and started to, to develop, and as I was making money, uh, I noticed one thing, that as it started to go well, I started to grab onto things, started to hold tighter to the business, you know, like it's my own business and giving less thought to uh, the spiritual side of the business, Though it was there, but it was very lightly there. And as I started to grip this, and I found myself beginning to work harder, work longer. And I started to make unwise decisions and sacrifices that all of a sudden caused pressure in life. And, and then when that pressure gets to a certain point, I just would realize what I was doing. And I'd repent and I'd say, here, God, you can have it back and let him fix it. <laughs> And so I'd give it back to him, and this went on over the years. I had this business for 11 years, and it, it was a good business. We did good. But, uh, you know, I, all through this time, he was teaching me, you know, what was, he was showing me what was in my heart uh, and, he, and how vulnerable I was to the temptation to the love of money and even, like, to the love of running a business, to building. And he showed me how careful I had to be and that I had to keep my mind, on, uh, you know, focused on who was my master. And uh, he made it clear to me that he would not settle for second place in my life. So in that time, uh, what I saw was in so many people, I noticed, and I noticed it in myself as well, that when you start dealing with people's finances, you, start, you really start to see who they are. People change. And you want to know someone, get involved in their finances, and you'll find out real quick who they are. You know, Bible Knowledge Commentary says, one's attitude towards wealth is another barometer of righteousness. The Pharisees believed that the Lord materially blessed all that he loved. They were intent on building great treasures here on earth. But treasures built here are subject to decay. And whereas treasures deposited in heaven can never be lost. Amen. The Pharisees had a wrong attitude about their treasures because their eyes were diseased. You know, you look at this last verse here in these scriptures that we're looking at. Your eye is a lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. If, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. The Pharisees had a wrong attitude about their treasures, 
because their focus was wrong. They were slaves to the master of greed. They coveted money and wealth. And so they were this put them into spiritual darkness. Notice what Jesus is saying here in the last part of 23. This is really startling. It says, and if the light you think you have is darkness, how deep is that darkness? These guys thought they were right, and they were dogmatic about it. Yet Jesus said that they were in deep darkness, and that if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. What is it about money that we put so much effort into getting it and make so many sacrifices for it? All too often, morals are put on the altar of the God of mammon. Character and integrity are put on this altar. Families and relationships, these things that are closest to the heart of God, are put on the altar of mammon. You know, we can check our spiritual temperature by asking ourselves, who is my master? Who am I serving? We do not want to be peop the people Paul is talking about when he says the, those who fall into the temptation of the desire to be rich become trapped by many senseless harms and desires and potentially plunged into ruin and destruction. We don't want to be those people. You know, one thing I'm so thankful for is that I recognized as a young Christian that as long as I was in debt, my options were limited. And I'm thankful that I realized that when debt was my master, it limited to the, the choices of where I worked and when I worked, and it gave me no choice but to put up with whatever came my way. And so I worked hard to change that by getting out of debt, getting myself financially to a place like not by saving lots of money, but just out of debt, a place where I could afford to take a lower paying job if I needed to or if I wanted to uh, because I did not like not being in control of my life. Being debt free gave me more control over my own life and especially when it came to being a Christian. It afforded me to be able to go to Bible college when that door opened up. I couldn't have done that if I was in debt. Being debt free gave me the liberty to move from construction to starting to minister here as a pastor at Livingstone's Church. You know, God wants us to be free from any bondage that's going to limit us from doing what it is that God has put us on this planet to do. And so I have to ask myself every once in a while, who is my master and who am I serving? You know, and being a pastor doesn't mean anything different than working and running my own business in the sense that I can get so busy running around here that... He's not my master, my ministry is the master. The ministry is the master, all the things I'm doing. So I have to ask that question as much as anybody else has to ask that question. Proverbs 22.7 says that the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anybody's slave. Anybody's slave other than Jesus Christ. I want to be free to be free to be about my father's business. That's what matters in this life that we're living you know, so many times we look at critically at the LGBTQ and yet we turn away from the immorality when, in the issues of greed. That's interesting. Yeah. We hear the phrase, 
um, we hear the phrase, it's just not good, or it's just good business, which is often used to excuse an act or a practice that when examined critically could be scarcely called Christian. And then a companion phrase, sorry, it's just not good business, is also used by businessmen as a vital reason to, for refusing to act in a Christian manner to their suppliers, customers, competitors, or employees. Oftentimes we're very vocal, uh, uncommonly vocal, about the subject of bedrooms, and so singularly silent when it comes to the subject of boardrooms. You know, God speaks very strongly about people who call themselves his, and yet lives like this. Paul writes in Romans 5.11, some pretty strong words here. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother or sister, who is sexually immoral or greedy, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. Now that's a pretty hard scripture. And it's like, man, the scripture says, If I claim to not have sin, I deceive myself, and the truth is not in me. But the difference between a person that's walking with the Lord who has uh, Jesus as Lord of your life, who does have the propensity to stumble around in life, is different than somebody who's in the bondage of sin, in the bondage of drunkenness, in the bondage of sexual immorality, or greedy to their detriment, and to everybody around them's detriment. There's a difference between those two things. You know, and it's a crazy thing to think that we're that we can think we're right and actually be wrong. That's a sobering thought to me. It's like the narrow is the way to life and few find it. You know, when I think of that verse, I think, you know, every once in a while I think, okay, Lord, I have to take stock of my life and say, okay, Lord, because even as a pastor, I can be so busy about things that I'm just running straight ahead, not thinking about the Lord, not thinking about anything other than myself and what I'm accomplishing. And it's just a little guard that God's given us to check our heart to stop, Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Stop and have, take stock of our lives. When Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches and that apart from him we can do nothing, this is what is happening here. These Pharisees, they're missing the mark because they are not connected to the vine. They couldn't discern truth. These Pharisees are missing the mark because they are not connected to the vine. And the apostles, the apostle Paul's writing to encourage the Corinthian church, telling them that when they were born of the Spirit, they're a new creation. He says, from now on, therefore, and remember, I got a clicker in my hand here. From now on, therefore, we regard no, no one from a human point of view, even though once we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, they are, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away, and see, everything has become new. When we are saved, when we have become and made Jesus Lord of our lives, surrendered our lives to the creator of this universe, everything old has passed away, and all things become new. What a great truth to grab a hold of. In true conversion, you know, this should actually even shift our worldview. We have a new master, and his name is Jesus. We have moved from being slaves to sin to being slaves of Jesus Christ. 
God has given us a perfect picture in nature of what, to me, it seems like this is what takes place in a believer's life. And it's seen in metamorphosis. You know, metamorphosis is a a radical change in form and function. Many animals go through this process. But most of us, we're familiar with the one is the one, um, the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. And yet scientists are only just beginning to grasp the miracle of what goes on in the chrysalis or the cocoon. New research shows that the insect's makeover is a mix of destruction of old ways and being and thinking combined with brand new ways of being and thinking. And until just recently, the only way to study how a caterpillar is changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly in the cocoon was to cut it open or x-ray it, and both of those would kill it and stop the action that was taking place. And, and, uh, but a recent issue in the National Geographic reports that a new micro-C scans uh, show how metamorphosis takes place, so they can watch this thing happen right through. Certain cells die and body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, other cells in place since birth rapidly expand. The adult emerges completely remodeled, capable of flight, and possessing a completely rewired brain. Their thinking has changed. All of a sudden, they're not just crawling on the ground. They can fly. And so their thinking is changed. Metamorphosis, it looks to me just like the perfect picture of what it takes place in a believer's life when we experience real conversion. You know, I was lost and I was held captive to the bondages of sin. And after I discovered that Jesus was alive and that he wanted to have a one-on-one relationship with me, I was changed. I was set free from those bondages. Before I had a relationship with Jesus, I was filled with anxiety, guilt, and fear, like I was. And I didn't realize it so much until I was saved And then after I knew Jesus as my Savior, personally, I was filled with this supernatural assurance that my destiny was eternity with him and with every other believer. And this brought me such comfort and peace. I was one way before I was a Christian. I was another way after I was a Christian. Before I knew Jesus, I was confused about life. After I met him, my mind was made clear. I understood that I, I all of a sudden knew truth. And it's that truth that set me free. I did certain things before I become a Christian that I don't do anymore. There should be a definite difference in the way that we as believers think and the actions and responses that we display in everything we do compared to a person who does not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And when we become believers, we change. Our thinking changes. And we're remodeled. And it can't be denied. And when this sort of thing takes place in a person's life, people notice this change. You can't help but notice it. And they begin to ask questions. This is why Jesus is teaching his disciples here these kingdom principles in the Sermon of the Mount. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consumes and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And he goes on to say, 
No one can serve two masters. A slave will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You know, happiness and security and significance for the most part is what every human being wants. But you know, too often we put so much importance on money thinking that if we just had a little bit more, we would be more secure. And if we were a little more secure, we think that other people might look at us a little differently, making us a little bit more significant in life. And Jesus is tearing down this lie to his disciples here. And he's replacing this lie with the truth that if they just keep their hearts fully focused on him, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then they will discover all the treasures of this world will fade away, will pale in comparison. This will set the trajectory for a healthy discipleship, including one's priorities, our motives, righteous deeds, ambitions, security, personal self-worth, and relationships. There's some real good counsel. You know, we take to heart what Jesus is saying in his scriptures here. This will solve a lot of problems that we have in our lives and get our focus on him. When we come to know the Lord, the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that there's a new creation. Everything old is passed away and everything becomes new. A transformation that is so radical takes place. You know, we see in the, in the fruits of the sinful nature, or the fruits in a life that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's, you know, we can see the fruits of the sinful nature are anger, rage, malice, slander, gossip, these things that, you know, we tend to do every once in a while. And then the fruits of the Spirit are quite different. So you see, when you see a person that is really uh, out there with their emotions and reactions that doesn't know the Lord, and then they become Christians and get to know the Lord, and then all of a sudden you see them, because usually if they're loud here, they're going to be a little loud here too. And then you see them, the fruits of the Spirit, or, you know, you just think of the difference and think what, you know, people would see that and they would ask questions because the fruit all of a sudden changes to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That would be a pretty, pretty big picture. Psalm 1 <clears throat> tells us, happy is the one, happy and blessed can be changed around. Blessed means happy. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. The wicked being just a person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is on the law of the Lord, and on who, meditate, or who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. It's right when you need it, it's there. It's there. And whose leaf does not wither. You know, like it's, it's there, you're healthy, the blood's flowing through you, you've got faith, and whatever you do prospers. This is you and me as we delight ourselves in the Lord. Do not store up for yourselves treasures in, on earth, where moth and rust consumes and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question is, who is your master? Who are you serving? It's very clear that God does not want second place. He won't take second place. 
There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. I don't want you to think that that's what's being said here because there's nothing inherently wrong with it. God is the one who generously gives resources and money. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and to whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is a gift of God. But when we become so concerned with the gift, more so than the giver, then it becomes a problem. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that the lover of money will never be satisfied with money. And he says, nor will the lover of wealth be satisfied with gain. Obsession with wealth ruins relationships with God, and it ruins our relationships with others. Our time on earth here is temporary, and we are all headed for eternity somewhere. We have an opportunity right now to make the most of everything and prepare for an eternity with God, listening and doing what Jesus says. Our eternal perspective affects our earthly priorities. What's valuable both now and in eternity is what God cares about. God cares about how we treat each other, and God cares about forgiveness. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God? In order for us to store up treasures in heaven, maybe we need a new heart. Amen. You know, maybe you have fallen in the past or maybe lately or maybe, you know, some time ago you've fallen to the temptation for riches and you've reaped the whirlwind. And you're feeling discouraged, you feel hopeless, you feel like you look ahead and you think, man, I haven't got enough time to get my life in order for things to work out. It's amazing what God can do with a life that's submitted to him. Just a, I didn't share this story in the one, but my father-in-law, at 50, he lost everything. Uh, and when his business went down, instead of claiming bankruptcy, he sold everything he had to pay his debts because he was a Christian in a small community and he didn't want to blemish the name of Jesus. So he, he had more debt than he had money when he, in the end. So what he did was he went to work at another job and he, to pay back, to pay these debts off. And he paid all his debts. And I watched his life and I thought, you know, <clears throat> just this... You know, see, okay, just watching and see, is God going to bless him with that? And God blessed him for that. By the time, the day he retired, he had, uh, so 15 years later, he had paid off all of his debts. He started up his own business. He sold that business when he turned 65. He sold that business for, and he would have, uh, the money that he ended up with would have been exactly where he was if he hadn't have sold everything he had, just in a, a vague perspective. And then when he retired, you know, he had more than enough to retire uh, when he, like as the years went on, God just kept adding to him. And I noticed that God blessed, you know, just about every area of his life because he honored God. And God is out for our good and he wants to honor all of us, you know, and it's, we get in the way of that because we just sort of, you know, we get tripped up. But the big thing is to recognize the sooner the better when we're tripping up and just to fall down like running that business, taking it in, messing it up and, and jumping ahead, stopping and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. 
and, you know, and straighten things up, make that the priority, and, and walk humbly before the Lord because he wants us all to succeed. You know, maybe we need a new heart because we're just stubborn. Maybe we've never made a commitment to Jesus as Lord in our lives. You know, God, when we, what we need to do is just say, Lord, draw me to yourself. You have a hard time having a desire to read your Bible. You have a hard time having a, being able to stay awake during prayer. I know what that's like. God will show you ways you can do that. But, you know, God wants us to seek him, and he'll give us the strength and the ability to do it. He says he's even given us the spirit of discipline, love, and a sound mind. He's given us everything for life and godliness. He's done it for us. We just need to walk in it. Our job is to get out of the boat and uh, put him first in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. We need to pursue Jesus above all things and surrender everything to him. And then maybe we need to simplify life. Because choose to live simply and not trying to attain the life that you see others around you living. The allure of making it in life keeps our eyes focused on the earthly treasures rather than the heavenly treasures. Our identity cannot be based on anything or anyone on this planet. We can choose to focus our lives on the temporary wealth, but God today is offering us treasures that will last forever. And we just have to, and I said in the first service, I pray that you never forget, I pray that when you lay your heads down, that you never forget to ask yourself continually, who is my master? Taking your spiritual temperature, who am I serving? And so, Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that you sent to live within us, to give us everything that we need, Lord, to live a godly life while we're here on this planet. You've given us wisdom. You've given us your word to meditate on day and night. You've given us the scriptures that Jesus says to store up our treasures in heaven so that we can be healthy, like that tree that's planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and who's always prosperous. Father, I pray that you'd help us to keep our temperatures before you. Help us, Lord God. Convict us, we say, move in, Holy Spirit, and convict us when we need to be convicted. Encourage when encouragement's needed. And we just uh, surrender our lives to you and pray your will be done and your kingdom come in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want to encourage you that, you know, if you are in a place where you feel like it, you're hopeless for any reason and you feel like there's no time left and, you know, you look, just feel like you blew it, God says that he will restore the years that the canker worm has eaten. He will restore anything that the enemy has robbed from you or, you know, like I wouldn't give him one bit of credit for anything. But God says he'll restore the years the cankerworm has eaten. And he's for us. So be blessed and be like that tree that's planted by them streams. In Jesus' name, amen.